0: Well, good morning, everybody. Do you have your Bible with you this morning? Colossians chapter 3 is where you need to go. If if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to find one or get close to someone who has one. Open up to Colossians chapter 3 so you can follow along as we study God's Word together today. Last week, we spent some time talking about the negative side of sanctification. We talked about how as God's children who were dead... But have been made alive by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, there are things that need to be put off, things that need to be laid aside. The text last week said there are things that need to be killed, even. And on the positive side, there are things that must be put on, there are things that must be taken up, there are things that must be lived out. We talked about how sanctification is about fighting sin and pursuing God as His people. Not to become his people, but because we are his people. In fact, some people define sanctification as simply becoming who you are in Christ. More and more every day. We're not doing something in order to become someone, but rather we're doing something because we are someone. We are children of God. That's why we sing songs like, I am who you say I am. And we ask him to help us live out that identity. We talked last week about the importance of aggressively putting to death all that is earthly in us. There are three things we talked about concretely at the end that I wish we had spent a little more time on. Three concrete ways we put to death that which is earthly in us. Number one, we starve it. Number two, we drag it into the light. And number three, we ask for help. We want to starve it. Some things are easier to starve than others. Some things are quite External, at least on the surface, seem quite external and are easy to starve. We talked a little bit last week about pornography. Pornography will be one of those things that can be starved. If you are prone to images on your computer, maybe you need to get rid of the computer as an act of starving. Maybe you need to get rid of your phone as an act of starving that sin. Maybe you need to put up some filters and things like that. As an act of starving that old man out. If it's alcohol or some other substance that you are abusing, starve that thing out. Just take yourself out of all the context in which you are tempted to do those things and starve that old man out. Maybe there are bad relationships that you need to starve out. Starve the old man out. That's one of the ways we kill him. Number two, we talked about dragging it into the light. There is value in confession, There is value in stating those things that are a stronghold in your life. Ultimately, we confess our sins to the Lord, right? That's where confession mainly takes place. We confess our sins to the Lord and there is power in confessing our sins to the Lord. But there is also helpful helpful progress in confessing our sins to one another. It is a good, good thing to take a trusted brother... Um, out for coffee, to sit down across a table with a trusted brother and say, brother, here is the thing that I'm struggling with and I'm really struggling with it and I want you to help me put it to death. I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to ask me the hard questions. One of the ways we fight sin, one of the ways we kill sin is we do it corporately. I told you that sanctification is a community project. So we confess it, we drag it into the light. I told you last week, it's like a vampire loses all of its strength in the light. And we ask for help. We invite others to come into our lives and help us fight sin together. And we do this as as a group. And and I want to also say that we need to be fighting it now. And I especially want to say it to you young people. It is important that you fight your sin now. That you be killing your sin now. Right now, while you're young, don't wait. If you feed the monster when you're 14, 15, 16 years old, with the expectation that when you're 40, you'll fight it. If you spend 30 years feeding the monster, you're not going to have very much success fighting it when you're 40. So I want to say this to you young people, like if you start fighting and killing your sin now, you're going to be way ahead of the game, way ahead of a lot of folks in this room today. So it's never too early to start fighting your sin, and no sin is ever too small to start killing it right now. So let's be aggressive in our fight against sin. This war... Is real. And the enemy attacks in a number of ways. And I told you last week that you can expect two things from the enemy. That for true brethren, he will accuse you and cause you to doubt your identity in Christ. Some of you experienced that over this week. As you fought sin, as you confessed sin, as you invited others to help you, the enemy whispered in your ear, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't do things like that. And the enemy accused you, caused you to doubt your identity in Christ. I told you that for false converts, those who don't really belong to God, the enemy will affirm you when sin is actually ruling over you. When you've given yourself entirely to sin, when it rules and reigns in your body, the enemy will say, you got nothing to worry about. A preacher, he's just a goody two shoes. Don't don't worry about it. In Christ, you're free. In Christ, there's no condemnation. In Christ, there's nothing to worry about. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't let anybody tell you how to live. Some of you experienced that this week. The purpose of the text that we looked at last week was not to condemn us, but to call us to make war against that which is already dead in us by God's grace. We fight from a position of victory, we fight from success. Well, this week, we're going to look at some indicative statements that will serve as the foundation for the imperatives that we'll look at over the next few weeks. The things that we are to put on. We talked last week about the things to put off. We're going to talk in the next few weeks about the things to put on. But we're going to go back to the foundation this week. And this is the gospel pattern. We don't do these things. We don't take the things off and put the things on in order to become children of God. We rather are children of God by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we take things off and we put things on. We put things to death and we live out our identity in Christ. We're going to see in the text today some corporate implications. I told you last week that sanctification is not a private matter. Our growth in godliness, our growth in Christlikeness is not something that happens in isolation. Sanctification is a community project. It's a group project. We work together to grow in Christlikeness. We help each other grow in Christlikeness. So today we're going to look at verses 9 through 11 of Colossians chapter 3. But I want to read nearly all of Colossians chapter 3 to get some context because I think it's important that we remember that although we in here on Sunday mornings are studying this very slowly there was an entire week's worth of life that took place between last Sunday and this Sunday between verse 8 and verse 9 in the text although a lot has happened between the last time we looked at this this is all one big thought And although we're picking apart in little bitty bites, this is all one big idea that we need to see as a whole, even as we zoom in and look on specific parts of it. So that's why I'm going to read so much to you today, Uh, but we're going to look closely at verses nine through 11 in our time together this morning. So look at it, Colossians chapter three, uh, starting in verse one, God's word says, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, or put to death that which is earthly in you. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry, For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion... Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work you've done in our lives. You have removed our hearts of stone and given us a heart of flesh. You have opened our blind eyes and unstopped our deaf ears. You have transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. You have forgiven us and redeemed us, justified us, adopted us, and reconciled us. You have raised us from the dead. And we deserve none of this. It is all a gift of grace that we do not deserve that we could never earn, and for which we are profoundly thankful. And we want to respond rightly to the abundance of grace you have lavished upon us. We want to put off the old and put on the new. We want to kill that which is earthly in us and live in righteousness. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. So we ask for your help, for we cannot do this on our own. And we are thankful that you have not left us on our own in this pursuit. You filled us with your Holy Spirit. You have given us your word and you have brought us together as a community. So we pray that you teach us now from your word. Conform us to the image of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to start our time in verse 9. And right off the bat, Paul says, do not lie to one another. Now, this is obviously flowing right out of what we saw last week in verse 8. Though we took a week off, though there's a verse break, though there is a period in the sentence, this is a continuation of the thought that we left with last week. Last week, we talked about the earthly matters that come out of our mouths that need to be put to death. In fact, look at it in chapter 3, verse 8. He says, Now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, Malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Jesus talks in Luke chapter 6 about how what we say with our mouths comes out of a deep place within us. Look what it says in Luke chapter 6 verse 43. Jesus says, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. Listen to this last line. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. His mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. And so Paul, in this text, is inviting us to put to death the evil speech because that's not who we are anymore. We are not bad trees. We do not bring forth bad fruit. We are good trees. We are children of God, who is the truth, not children of Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies. That's why I love that we sang just a little while ago, I am who you say I am. And if you are in Christ, he has said, you're a good tree. Therefore, bring forth good fruit. That's what Paul is calling you to. He's reminding you of your identity to call you to action. And the good tree bears good fruit. That's the way it works. I'm convinced that for someone in the room today, maybe more than one, people, one person in the room today, this is what you need to hear. Don't lie to one another. Don't lie to one another. It's a simple, it's a simple declaration. It's a simple command. Some of you are just caught up in a whole web of lies, a whole life of deceit. And you need to hear God say clearly in his word, don't lie to one another. The call here has community emphasis in it, as does the rest of the text that we're going to look at today. Notice that he says, don't lie to one another. Like in this room, amongst the body, amongst the brethren, don't lie to one another. And I want to make one more point about this matter of lying before we move on. I want to point out that there are very subtle ways that we lie to each other that must be stopped as well. Like sometimes we read that text says don't lie to one another and all we think about are big, fat, obvious, blatant lies. But there are more subtle ways that we are dishonest with each other, that we lie to one another. Sometimes we keep the truth from one another and therefore lie to one another. Sometimes we only give part of the truth to one another and therefore lie to one another. Sometimes we, we try to say, well, it depends on how you define the word blank. And we lie to one another. To say it another way, if you're looking for loopholes, you're not telling the truth to one another. If you're looking for loopholes and way around, ways around, you are lying to one another. And among the body of Christ, there should be honesty. There should be integrity. There should be transparency. There should be vulnerability that will necessarily come with that kind of honesty. Amongst the body of Christ, amongst the body of Christ, we do not lie to one another. So stop lying to one another. Notice what he says next, though. He says, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. This is so important, the way Paul builds the argument. Once again, he circles back to the indicative statements as the foundation for the imperative calls to action. In other words, he bases the commands on the reality of our identity in Christ. He says, don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. This whole section of Colossians is an invitation to lay aside the old self with its evil practices. To do so very practically, very observably, very tangibly. But here he says, you can do that practically because it has already happened positionally. You can lay aside the old self practically because you have already laid aside the old self positionally. That's the way he builds the argument. In other words, when you came to faith in Jesus, when you got saved, there was a death and a burial of that old self. That happened at your conversion. The old self died and was buried. And therefore, you can practically put the old self to death. This is the way Paul says it in Romans chapter 6 emphasizing the positional aspect of it. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You catch that? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We have died to sin. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Listen carefully to verse 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died to sin, he who has died is freed from sin. And that's what Paul here in this verse in Colossians is reminding us that you have died to sin. You have laid aside the old self. Or consider the way he says it in Galatians chapter 5. Just after he has contrasted, just after he has contrasted the deeds of the flesh which bring about condemnation and the fruit of the Spirit, against such there is no law, he says this in verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Have crucified. Not are crucifying, not are putting to death, but have crucified. So at conversion, like nail this down, at conversion, there was a definitive, positional, accomplished death. At conversion, there was a laying aside of the old self. It is done. It is accomplished. And here, Paul reminds us of that in order to encourage us to put it off and lay it aside practically. We can lay it aside practically because it has been laid aside positionally. We can lay it aside in a very tangible way because it has been laid aside in an accomplished way at our conversion. We've got to get that identity right in order to to live it out. Our position and our practice should always be in line with one another. And this is part of why Paul in in Romans chapter 6 is like, shall we go on in sin so that grace may increase all the more? That's crazy talk. You're dead to sin. How can you still live in it? It doesn't make any sense to claim to be positionally dead to sin, to have positionally laid aside the old self with its practices, and yet live as if the old self still reigns. Rather, if this is what we claim has happened positionally, then we better live a certain way practically. And we will live a certain way practically. Paul here is reminding us of our identity in Christ in order to call us to action that lines up with that identity. Look at verse 10. He says, don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is so good. What happened at our conversion was not just negative. We didn't just die to some things. We didn't just put some things away. Rather, we were also brought to life. Check out what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. This is the quintessential statement of this fact. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's the reality of who we are in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone. Look, the new is come. And I really am intrigued by the behold there, or the look. Look, the new has come. Because this is a positional statement. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone. Look, the new has come. That's all very positional. But it's also an invitation to, to acknowledge that there will be some evidence of that. Because you'll be able to see the newness of life. You'll be able to look at it. You'll be able to behold the new that has come. It will be lived out tangibly and practically this position that is ours in christ if you are in christ this is true for you if you are in christ you have put off the old and put on the new positionally you are no longer a sinner under condemnation from a holy god that's good news right if you're in christ not a sinner under condemnation from a holy god you're a saint headed for eternal glory justified, declared righteous. That's who you are if you are in Christ. And so the question that keeps being begged in this text is, are you in Christ? If not, repent and believe today. That's how you come to be in Christ, by repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, rejoice. Rejoice over this position that is yours. Rejoice over the fact that you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. Rejoice over that position that is yours and embrace the identity that is yours. You are a saint. If you are in Christ, you are redeemed. You are beloved. You are reconciled. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. You are a saint. Rejoice over that position that is yours and live like it. Live like a saint. Live like one who is clean. Live like one who is holy. Live like one who has been redeemed. That's what this section of Colossians is about. Remembering the identity that is ours in Christ and living it out practically day in and day out by God's grace. If you are in Christ, rejoice over your position and live like it in your practice. There's some interesting things going on in this text in verse 10. Notice he says, you have put on the new self who is being renewed, have put on, is being renewed. This gets to Paul's point in the whole section of the letter. It's this already but not yet tension that really runs throughout this letter, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Christian life, as a matter of fact. There are some things that are already true, but not yet fully realized. Some things that are already certain, but not yet experienced. We are already saints, but we're not yet living quite like it. Jason talked about the power of sin and the penalty of sin, but we're not yet delivered from the presence of sin. We long for that day. We pray that it will come quickly. There's also a tension in this text between that which is instantaneous and that which is progressive, this positional truth of who you are in Christ is instantaneous. In an instant, you went from being a sinner to a saint. You went from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. You went, to, you went from being under condemnation to being totally accepted. That was instantaneous. But there are parts of the Christian life that are progressive that happen over time. We become more and more conformed to the image of Christ over time. We become more and more practically holy over time. We grow in Christ-likeness over time progressively. And there's a tension between those two things, but our progress is rooted. Our progress is rooted in our position. We don't ever want to forget that. We don't ever want to forget about our identity. Notice also there's a connection in this text between renewal and knowledge. Look what he says. He says, You've put on the new self who is being renewed. To a true knowledge, according to the image of the one who created him. Some translations read it like that. Renewed to a true knowledge. That seems to indicate that as we're being conformed to the image of Christ, as we're being renewed, we gain knowledge of Christ. True story, right? Like That's our experience. As we are being conformed to the image of Christ, as we grow in Christ-likeness, we also grow in knowledge of Christ. We also grow in our understanding and our experience with him, right? That's true. Other translations read it like this. We are renewed in a true knowledge. And that would seem to indicate that as we grow in knowledge, we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ. True story, right? Like as I grow in my understanding of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for me, I grow in likeness to him. Like, as I grow in understanding, I also am renewed through that understanding. Like, both of those ways to interpret this verse are absolutely accurate. And when you put them together, it creates this glorious upward spiral of Christ-likeness. Where I am renewed to the image of Christ and understand Christ more. And as I understand Christ more, I'm conformed to His image more. And as I'm conformed to His image more, I grow in understanding more. And that's the trajectory I want to be on, right? Right? Like, I want to be growing not just in my, in, in my Christ-likeness in practice, but also my understanding and appreciation of who Christ is and what he has done. That's the upward spiral of sanctification that we should all be on. But the experience of many people I know is the exact opposite of that. They've got zero interest in conforming to the image of Christ, zero interest in growing in the knowledge of Christ. Just want to claim a ticket to heaven and be done with it. That's the downward spiral that I think leads to hell ultimately. I don't think that's what real faith looks like. If you've got no desire to be conformed to the image of Christ and no desire to know Christ more, that will just lead to more sin, more depravity, more neglect of his word, more neglect of his people. And I don't know that there can be any confidence that at the end of that train, you end up in heaven. That's a scary path to be on. And I know some people who are on it. I know some people who are on it and it's evident in their lives. They've got no desire for holiness in their lives. No desire to fight sin and pursue God. No desire to study his word. No desire to grow in their understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. No desire to be in community with other believers. And I fear for their souls. And I don't want that to be you. This connection between renewal and knowledge Super interesting. But look what happens in verse 11. This is a whole new track that he starts in verse 11. He says, You've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there's no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. This is huge right here for us and super practical for today. Paul teaches here that as we grow in Christ-likeness, as we are conformed to the image of Christ, the barriers that once kept us separated fall down and we are brought together as one body. The divisions that he mentions here from 2,000 years ago are provocative and cover a number of areas. He's talking about racial differences. He's talking about religious barriers. He's talking about cultural barriers. He's talking about social barriers. He's basically saying every conceivable way that people are separated from each other is brought down under the lordship of Jesus Christ. He talks about Greeks and Jews. Greeks and Jews wouldn't spend any time together. If you were a good Jew in the first century, you didn't eat at a Greek person's house. You didn't share a meal with a Gentile. You didn't touch a Gentile. You didn't spend any time at all with a Gentile. You kept yourself separated from them as much as possible. Greeks and Jews were on totally different sides of the aisle, so to speak. And he throws into all this business about Scythians. I read some stuff about these guys. You know much about them? They're bad dudes. Like the worst of the worst. Barbarians, that's one level. Barbarians who are so fleshly and worldly. But Scythians are like barbaric barbarians. I read some stuff about them. One scholar said they would drink the blood of the first enemy they killed in battle. They would make napkins of the scalps of their enemies. They would make drinking bowls from the skulls of the slain. And this scholar, this historian says, they had the most filthy habits and never washed with water. As if that's somehow worse than the other stuff. Like they're drinking the blood of their first enemy from his skull and never take a bath. The bath seems small potatoes to me. But do you see the picture that he paints here? He's like, under the lordship of Christ, under the transforming influence of the Holy Spirit, He makes out of all of these different kind of folks one body. He brings together Greeks and Jews and throws some Scythians in the mix too. Now, they don't get to keep drinking blood like out of a skull. That's got to go. But I don't know that they need to take a bath necessarily to be part of the body. I don't know that they need to take a bath. I don't know that that's necessarily sinful, but God is bringing all these different kind of folks together through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We talked about this recently on Sunday night in Matthew chapter 10, in our study of Matthew on Sunday nights. It's the first time Matthew lists the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. He talks about them. He lists all their names all together. He puts them in pairs like the other gospel writers do. But he gives details really only about two of them, three arguably, but two of them in particular I want to draw attention to. He identifies himself, Matthew does, as Matthew the tax collector. And he identifies another guy whose name is Simon as Simon the Zealot. And that, you read that and you just roll right over it like that's no big deal to you. But I'm telling you, if you were a first century Jew and you read about a guy who was getting a group together, a team, he was assembling a team, and he put on his team a tax collector and a zealot, you would think that's craziness. Because the tax collector was a Jewish man who had aligned himself with the enemy who was Rome. He had basically said, I'll collect your taxes from my own people. I'll take a little bit extra for myself in order to fund your army that is oppressing my people, that is occupying my land, that is raping my women. I'll I'll collect money from my own people to fund that process. That's Matthew, the tax collector. Simon the Zealot, on the other hand, was a member of a militia who wanted to see Rome utterly destroyed and was ready to rise up in arms and take Rome out. He hated Rome. Matthew and Simon would not have been friends. They would have each considered the other the enemy. And yet what happens? Jesus gets a hold of them and he brings them together. There are things that change in Matthew's life and there are things that change in Simon's life but Jesus brings them together and makes them one family despite their differences. We saw this several months ago when we studied through Paul's letter to Philemon. You remember Philemon, the kind of wealthy, influential leader and Onesimus, the thieving, runaway slave? What does Paul say? Philemon, kill him. He's done you wrong. Put him to death so that no one else will treat you like that. Treat him like a thieving, runaway slave. When he comes back to you, you get justice. Is that what Paul says to Philemon? No, he says, you treat him like a brother. You treat him like a brother because that's what he is now. I'm telling you the gospel brings all kinds of people together. That's what the gospel does. It doesn't just reconcile us to God. It reconciles us to one another and breaks down the walls that would hold us apart. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Turn to your Bibles just a few pages over. Ephesians chapter 2 is so good. I want to to read all of it to you because verses 1 through 10 absolutely articulate the gospel, the the good news, that you were dead. He made you alive. By grace you are saved through faith. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. All of that is so good. All of that is about our identity, what God has done for us in Christ. That's verses 1 through 10. Look at verse 11 with me. He says, therefore, right? After after articulating the good news, the work that God does for us in Christ, he says, therefore, remember that formerly you, Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups Into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having put to death through it, having put to death the enmity. You catch what's going on there? He talks in verses one through ten about the reconciliation that comes through the gospel vertically. And then he says, and it also brings about horizontal reconciliation. It also brings together people who would otherwise be separated because their lives have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. My question for you is, what are the dividing lines that exist among us today? What are the dividing lines that exist among us today in 2020 in Harrisburg, Illinois? We don't have any Scythians running running around. Not many of us are divided uh, in, in the Greek and Jew category. What are the barriers that keep us apart today? Think that through. Are there racial barriers? For sure. For sure there are racial barriers that keep us separated today from our neighbors. Are there income barriers that keep us separated? Absolutely, that's a big deal in Harrisburg. Are there barriers of education? Level of education? Sure, that's a barrier that keeps us separated. I wonder sometimes if even within the body there is a barrier that separates us sometimes based on our personal history. Like I wonder sometimes if, if folks who grew up kind of squeaky clean, goody two-shoes kind of folks are separated from folks who maybe lived a life of rebellion before they came to Christ and feel like we don't have anything in common. The point of this text is if you are in Christ, you've got everything in common. Like you've got all you need in common. Regardless of what might separate you, if you are in Christ, you can be together because of the gospel. In fact, look at what he says in the very next phrase, which is the linchpin of the whole thing. He says, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, our unity must come through Christ, not some other lesser common denominator. We must not settle for less than Christian union because Christ is all and in all. Christ is all. He is everything. He is supreme. He is sufficient. He is the source of our salvation. He is our savior. He is our Lord. He is our king. Christ is all. And we got to keep that in focus as we gather together. And when we keep it in focus... When we keep him in focus, we will be brought together. Christ is all, and then he says, and Christ is in all. That is, all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, this is what brings us together. Christ is all, and Christ is in all. And if we remember that, we will not fight with one another about little stuff, will we? We won't fight with one another about our preferences. We won't fight with one another about our likes and dislikes. We won't fight with one another about our backgrounds or our finances or our dress or anything or the music we listen to or something like that. If we will remember that Christ is all and Christ is in all, we will be brought together as the one body that God, in, God intends us to be. Our unity must be Christian unity. not middle-class unity, not even Harrisburg unity, but Christian unity. Three applications from this text. Number one, in Christ, you're a new creature. In Christ, you're a new creature. In Christ, you have put off the old self and you have put on the new self. You are who he says you are. In Christ, you are a child of God. When I first heard that song, I thought, I don't, I don't think I like this. I don't think I like this, especially the last part about, it. yes, I am. I just kind of didn't like, like the tone of that. But I like it a lot now. Because I need to be reminded that that is who I am. And I am who he says I am. But That's not the end of the story. If I am a child of God, yes, I am, I will live like it. And I will want to live like it. And I don't want to forget that part. I guess maybe that's part of why I didn't like that. Yes, I am. Because I feel like that's the end of the story for some people. And it's not the end of the story. That's the foundation upon which your life is lived. That's the foundation upon which your behavior is determined. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God. Yes, you are. Live like it. Live like a child of God. Walk in a manner, as the text Joe read, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You're not. You can become a child of God today. He likes to adopt children. He loves that. Do you, do, you, do you know people who like see random stray dogs on the side of the road and just like can't drive by them, just bring them all home? I, I think the father is like that. Like he, he likes to adopt people into his family. Folks who are lost, folks who are dirty, folks who have no one to turn to. Folks who think they have no hope at all, he likes to scoop those kind up and bring them into his family and give them hope and life and a home forever and ever. Maybe today is the day he brings you into his family. Repent of your sins. Trust in Jesus Christ. Experience a new relationship with him. In Christ, you are a new creature. Number two, Christ is all. We've said a thousand times lately in Colossians, he is everything you need. He is enough. He has died for your sins. He has been buried and he has raised to life. Jesus is all. Nothing to add, nothing more you need. He is all. And thirdly, he is in all. And the walls of separation will be broken down as we focus on Christ, as we pursue Christ, as we live like Christ the walls of separation will be broken down. What's the answer to racial reconciliation? Jesus. What's the answer to socioeconomic unity? Jesus. The gospel. Christ is all and in all. And in him, we can be together. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free man, even some Scythians thrown in the mix. All together in Christ tax collectors, zealots, together in Christ. Because he changes us and he gives us a new identity that eclipses all the other identities we have. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we want to be together like this. We want to be together because we are in Christ. us to fix our eyes on Jesus to see that he is all and in all Father I can't help but think that, that you really want us to hear this today because the enemy has obviously tried to distract us today in a hundred different ways since nine o'clock this morning he has been trying to distract us In the hour and a half we've been in this room, he's been trying to distract us. So I pray that in these next few minutes, you will give us supernatural focus, that we will not be distracted by the enemy, but that we will be tuned in to hear what you have been saying to us, and that we will be ready to respond to it with humility, submission, and obedience. Father, I thank you for who I am in Christ. I pray that you will help me to know that I am who you say I am. And that my life will be clear evidence of my identity. I pray for men and women and boys and girls who are lost. They are who you say they are. And they are outside. Unredeemed. Dead in their trespasses. And you alone can bring them in and make them live. And I pray that you would do that. Not just for their good, but for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.